More than 100,000 Russian troops have taken up positions along the border with Ukraine, and President Biden is saying a Russian invasion of the country is imminent. Meanwhile, Russian President Vladimir Putin hasn't spoken publicly about the situation in over a month or said why his military is on the move. Some one million Americans are of Ukrainian descent, and they live largely in northern Rust Belt cities like Chicago. So how is that community reacting? And just how worried should we all be? Here to share their thoughts and analysis are two men who recently returned to Chicago after being in Ukraine. DePaul University political science professor Dick Farkas is with us now. Welcome, Professor Farkas. Thank you, Sasha. Good to be here. We're also joined by Yulian Haida. He's a third-generation Ukrainian-American and a former producer here at WBEZ. Welcome, Yulian. Thanks for having me, Sasha. Professor, let's start with your analysis. Do you think that we're about to see Russia invade Ukraine? Actually, I don't. Um, Why I not? That, uh, well, there are a number of reasons. Um, I guess the, the essential thrust is that, um, and I should add that I've been teaching about this part of the world for for decades, and I even teach a course exclusively about about Vladimir Putin. Uh, it's built on the notion that that my best sense is that Putin is a rational actor, and is a very calculating um, policymaker. And there are factors that I think have been ignored in the analysis of and the anticipation of this so-called invasion. Um, the bottom line is, I think an awful lot of journalists are simply repeating what they're hearing from other journalists. And the same thing is true from politicians. I keep searching for the people who are making an independent analysis, uh, which is, of course, what I try to do. So I think there are at least four key reasons why it is very unlikely. So I think it's not only not imminent, but not likely mm. that there'll be a, um, an invasion. As we mentioned, Putin's been tight-lipped in recent weeks. What do we know about why he's moving so many troops to the Ukrainian border? Well, I think uh, I think it's largely about signaling. Uh, I think he's accomplished quite a lot. Uh, there are times when it appears that Vladimir Putin feels left on the sidelines in uh, in global affairs and, and the dynamic. Um, and it, it, I think it 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 took a lot of shape during the Trump administration when. Uh, when he felt like he was he was pushed aside and was wasn't central any longer to the dialogue, um, you know that the NATO Russia Council, which was so critical to the dialogue between those two entities, uh, was was done away with. It's now been resurrected so that that diplomacy can continue. But but I, I, again, I think I think what we're facing is is an awful lot of regurgitating of uh, of the threat. And, and people aren't, aren't accommodating the costs uh, that uh, and the factors that Putin would have to take into account. I mean, I can I can briefly identify those for you if you think that's useful. Sure. All right. So there's four basically, and I'll be very brief. Um, the first is that that we know that that if there were an invasion, that the the Ukrainian system can't confront the the Russian military. Uh, toe-to-toe, so they would have a real problem. But 70% of the males um, in, in Ukraine, at least when I was there a month ago, said that they would be willing to sign up and fight. So what we're talking about is a bloodbath, basically, if, if it's done in a conventional military way. And I think what we have to remind ourselves, the lesson we learned in Vietnam, that this would be broadcast live, not only on the media, mm-hmm. but on, on the Internet. 
So I think the entire world's response to that kind of activity would be overwhelmingly negative. Yeah. It would be dysfunctional from, from Putin's perspective. Then there's the cost of redeveloping. The Donbass and, and Luhansk uh, have been in this insurgency mode for at least five years. And the bottom line is that the infrastructure has been destroyed, the industrial base has been destroyed, the housing stock has been destroyed. So it's estimated, a very conservative estimate, is that if the Russians were to take control of that region and try to resurrect it, it would cost over $30 billion billion with a B mm-hmm. dollars. Mm. And everybody that knows about the Russian economy knows that they don't have that flexibility. The third factor is interestingly enough, a generational thing. The Russian military has discovered, and there's no, I haven't seen much in the, in the media about this, but, but the Russian media, uh, the military has discovered that they have a real problem controlling their young recruits. That is to say, there's no, what they call internet discipline. These recruits all have cell phones. <laughs> they're all taking pictures of where they're deployed. They're all sending messages back to their friends and family. And as a consequence, it's very, very difficult for the Russian military to control the information flow and their claims about what is and is not happening. Right. And the last, the last item, the fourth and last item is, is about managing insurgency. As I suggested to you a moment ago, I don't know any analysts that think that the Ukraine can stand up in the face of a continental army-like attack, tanks and, and rockets and that sort of thing. Having said that, what, what, what would likely result is an insurgency, a protracted insurgency. And just think about Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin thinking about this mm-hmm. and remembering that their track record in Afghanistan against an insurgency was poor. Their track record in in Chechnya was even worse. And the bottom line is that they don't have a military that's trained to deal with insurgency. So that what Ukraine would become is a massive insurgency. And and I don't think that Vladimir Putin can calculate that they'd be successful in that environment. Well, let's let's hear from Yulian on this. Uh, I'm anxious to get your response to some of what the professors laid out for us here. But uh, I do want to start with this. You, You just got back yourself uh, to Chicago after spending several months in Ukraine. Can you tell us what folks were saying there about the situation? Sure. You know, I think that the people in Ukraine have a rather similar analysis, and I think it's a sober analysis that uh, Professor Farkas has. Um, part of that, uh, not to you know, psychoanalyze 45 million people, is perhaps because when you have um, uh, an antagonist, uh, a provocation at your border, and when you have been in a state of frozen conflict, as Ukraine has been in the East for eight years, you want to, uh, you know, you want to have life move on as as planned. Uh, it is it is true that it is not in the interest of Russia to attack. They don't have enough soldiers. They don't have the strategy to occupy Ukraine. But that doesn't mean that Ukrainians aren't preparing for potential uh, destabilization that can happen in other ways. Um, So that is uh, one of the concerns. And, and of course, Ukrainians are preparing. That uncertainty that Professor Farkas raised Mm -hmm. is a very real possibility in the sense that, you know, even a few months ago, you wouldn't have, you know, citizen rifle training or things like that where people are preparing for the possibility of war while also uh, hoping for for the best and hoping for peace. The people of Ukraine want peace. And one of the frustrating parts of watching this from Ukraine 
is that Ukrainians generally have not been at the diplomatic table, right? Russia is demanding to uh, negotiate with the United States uh, over the fate of Ukraine. This is somewhat of a repeat where the uh, United States negotiator with the Taliban without the input of the Afghan government. Of Mm -hmm. course, situations were pretty different in that case. But uh, the Ukrainian people feel unheard and they feel uh, unable to participate in the peace process. They are committed to the uh, processes that have been laid out, that have uh, the Minsk processes, and um, they, you know, they again, they're 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 preparing for the worst, hoping for the best. Now, looking on the other side of the border in Russia, uh, a poll just a few weeks ago says that after uh, health and and safety related to the COVID pandemic, the majority of Russians say their greatest fear is a world war. I think it's about fifty-four percent, according to the Levada Center, which. You know, that fear um, is informed by the media that they're consuming. Our fear here in the United States is, as Professor Farkas says, tends to be a little bit of an echo chamber, but there's there's something in the middle there um, that is the Ukrainian people, 45 million of them, one of the biggest countries uh, in, in Europe, and um, they want peace. They want a peaceful resolution, mm-hmm. but if it comes to it, if they're going to lose their homes, they're going to fight for them. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We are discussing escalating tensions between Russia and Ukraine with DePaul University political science professor Dick Farkas and Yulian Haida. He's a third generation Ukrainian-American, also a former producer here at WBEZ, who just returned to Chicago after several months in Kyiv. Coming up in about five minutes on the program, new research shows that giving monthly cash stipends to low-income families could affect infant brain activity. So stay with us for that conversation. Sticking with you for another moment here, Yuliana, is it upsetting how little most Americans know about Ukraine, including how many refer to it as the Ukraine, as if it were just a region of the Russian Empire? Yeah, this is a, this is a little bit of a gaffe that even President Obama committed uh, during his presidency when the, the conflict kind of really took off eight years ago. Um, it's generally um, understood that when you add an article before uh, a, a proper noun that you're referring to a region, uh, the South, um, you know, any any kind of, you know, the, the, the Levant, things like that. Right. And regions usually constitute larger bodies. Um, of course, there are exceptions. The Philippines is a plural. Uh, you know, the Gambia refers to a river. So, of course, there are exceptions. Ukrainians prefer, and there is an analog to this in the Ukrainian and Russian languages as well, to drop the article because Ukraine is a sovereign state. It is not a region of Europe or of Russia. So we just say, we just say Ukraine. <laughs> now, um, you know, I think what that really gets at is is the issue of sovereignty and of self determination. Yeah. And the things that Ukrainians have done with that self determination over the last. 30 years of independence would make a Chicagoan, um, you know, blink and, and, and you'd miss it because so many things have changed, positive things that we would be jealous of in this city. I mean, they, five years ago, um, fired every single last police officer in the country and hired them from scratch. They have uh, addressed uh, massive inequality uh, by introducing, uh, granted, I'm not saying this is this is perfect or this is you know solve the problems it's it sets off to create, but you know they have addressed a massive corruption um, by nationalizing banks and reorganizing them and, and, and things like that that were set off in, in the 1990s. Mass privatization. High schools teach media literacy. Everybody has a sense of how to fight disinformation. The cybersecurity uh, stature of Ukraine 
is improved because they've been facing threats in a way that we haven't in the United States. And that is now um, being dismissed, all the positive changes that have happened in Ukraine, all of the positive reforms that are happening in Ukraine, the development of a civil society that we can only dream of in a place like Chicago. Mm. Uh, it has happened in Ukraine and is an example, but um, we, we don't see that because, you know, if it bleeds, it reads. It's, it's, right. Uh, and, and, you know, if there's a war, of course, people pay attention to the war, but they're missing a lot of really, really interesting and important developments in Ukraine. But, you know, we in Chicago and our media landscape don't have foreign reporters anymore, unfortunately. We look to D.C., and D.C. repeats what the president says. Right. So we really need to develop a sense of media literacy and being kind of global citizens right where we are, because it affects us as well. Well, Professor Farkas, what is the way forward here? Is there any way that a peaceful resolution can be reached? Well, I, I think there is an off, a real proliferation of diplomacy, and, and that always holds out a prospect for some progress. There are two things that I would want to add, though, so that it doesn't get left out of the discussion. People need to understand that the control, the political control in, in the East, uh, in Luhansk and uh, Donbass, is primarily warlords. These are local people um, who have taken charge. They have their own private operations, and they're largely entrepreneurial. They're profiteering. They're smuggling. Now, one of the things that, that the Kremlin would have to take into account is once, if the Russians were to occupy that region, they have to deal with uh, reducing the role of those warlords. And it's just possible that in the interest of their own profiteering, they might turn on the Russian occupiers as well. So there's a complication there. It's not the, the people who are fighting are not Russians against Ukrainians at the moment. It's it's more complicated that in the East. Now, to, to, to directly answer your question, I predict that there will be a conflict, but it'll be in cyber warfare. I think that's the low risk, high yield, and Ukrainian the primary Ukrainian vulnerability. So you, th you think that we could see uh, a cyber attack on Ukraine by Russia? Not just an attack, uh, a myriad of attacks. Um, and this will be the primary format for conflict. And, and they can, what they can do in the process, by, by attacking institutions in Kiev and elsewhere, they can demonstrate what some Ukrainians are concerned about, and that is they're not sure that their government at the moment is strong. So the bottom line is this would be sort of undermining the integrity of the, the current system the political system and the political leadership. I think, you know, boots on the ground would be a horrendous risk for the Russians. Mm. Cyber warfare, different story altogether. Let me give the last word to you, Yulian. We've just got about 30 seconds here. What would you like to see moving forward? I want to see um, peace uh, in Ukraine. Uh, Ukrainians are committed to peace. Um, they do want what the people of Chicago want, which is to live in a peaceful, democratic, and stable society, and they want their voices heard. So I would like to see some diplomatic solution that would prevent the loss of life, but one that takes into account the needs and the dignity of Ukrainians and the work that they've put into developing a robust civil society that is free of corruption and inequality. That is Ukrainian-American Yulian Haida, a former producer here at WBEZ. Also with us, DePaul University political science professor Dick Farkas. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We've got more for you on the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.